Beloved congregation, this is our God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us uh, ask his blessing on our time in his scriptures this morning. Father, we confess that sometimes your word scares us. It threatens our comfort, our wants, and our desires. And it calls us to surrender to your authority. And we know that this is good. We know that there is no safer place to be in the universe. And so we ask that you would quell our fears, that you would silence all competing voices, including our own, and that you would allow us to hear all that you have to say to us, knowing that it is for our good. Amen. You may be seated. I feel like I share it every few years, but it's one of my favorite quotes. It's by J. Vernon McGee. If you've been around for a while, you know what I'm about to say. It's this quote. I love it. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said, This is God's universe, and he is doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And uh, I love it. So true. Uh, It's funny. It makes us laugh. And yet there is something profound about that statement. Because it goes at the issue of authority. It's a subject that, that people don't like to talk about. And in fact, a lot of people say things like, authority uh, makes me nervous. It makes me anxious. Uh, and any notion of absolute authority, that's just a non-starter. People, people disparage authority. Because when we think about authority, and especially absolute authority, what do we think about? We think about tyrants and despots, dictators. Uh, we think about totalitarian uh, rulers. But we do need to ask a question, and it's this. Is authority itself the problem, or is the problem how we use authority? Jesus is not afraid of this subject. In fact, in our passage, he he hits it head on. And and the position that he presents is, is going to make some of us uncomfortable. Because it's something like this. Jesus has absolute authority, 
and he requires absolute loyalty. That's a pretty uh, big statement. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the God of the universe, if he is the creator, then there could be no other way. And so we want to look at this confrontation that Jesus has with these leaders in Jerusalem in the temple because it's, it's about his authority over the temple. It's about his authority over the world. And, and as we look at that, we don't want to miss the opportunity at the end to ask, how does this affect us and our lives? How does it relate to us as God's people? So that's really where we're headed this morning. And as we uh, come to Jesus' clash with these leaders, we, we need to remember there's a context that, that leads up to our passage. It's, it's not like Jesus just appears out of nowhere and he begins teaching in the temple, and everybody's like, oh, who's that? What's going on? Think about everything we've been seeing through this, our study in the book of Luke. He's been going throughout the land, village to village, town to town, and he's been amassing this very large following. And along the way, he's had several clashes with, with religious leaders. And he's challenged them. And he's offended them. And he's made claims to be the Lord, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, who is at the center of all the scriptures. He's claimed to be the one who will save his people and bring peace between heaven and earth. And now he's standing in the temple. And we have to ask, how how did he enter? Well, he quoted the prophets saying that the temple has become a den of thieves. He then turned tables over. He he drove people out with a, a whip. And then he turns around and starts preaching. Now, can you imagine if somebody came into our building, our church, and started behaving like that? It's not surprising that the leaders come up and ask him, by whose authority do you do these things? It's not an irrational question. It it could simply be taken as, who do you think you are? Or or simply, has someone uh, sent you and forgotten to tell us? Because leaders are responsible to protect those over whom they they lead. Your elders, your pastors would do the same thing if someone came into our church doing these sorts of things. We don't just let anyone walk up and take control and start teaching. So on one hand, there's, there's nothing surprising about what the leaders do here, on one hand. But have you ever noticed that that things that can seem totally okay aren't always okay? (laughs) And sometimes are very un-okay? Different people can ask the exact same question for very different reasons. Think about uh, uh, the serpent and the Bereans. They essentially ask the exact same question. Has God really said? Right, The serpent asked Adam and Eve, has God really said not to do this? And when Paul started preaching in Berea, the, the, the Bereans said, well, that's very interesting. Let's open up the scriptures and see if that's what God really said. But there's a huge difference. 
Whereas the Bereans wanted to know if that's what God really said in order that they could submit to God's truth, the serpent was trying to undermine God's truth. It's not just what you ask, but the reason, the why, why you ask it that matters. And so why is it that these leaders are asking Jesus about his authority? Well, we heard at the end of chapter 19, verse 47, that they were seeking to destroy Jesus. And in chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, we see that they are doing whatever they could to protect themselves. In other words, they weren't seeking truth. They were protecting their power. They weren't serving God as they claimed. They were serving themselves. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have some legitimate authority. They did. God has always used human leaders, sinful human leaders in his kingdom. He's used prophets and he's used priests and kings. He's used judges and town elders. And he's never shied away from putting them in places of authority. But these leaders are here not to do his will, but their own. And there's always a temptation for those given authority to think they own the place, to, to think, for them to think that this is their temple. And it's the, their honor, their authority that needs to be guarded, not God's. That's what's going on here. They're not asking about Jesus' authority with this genuine curiosity, like maybe the Lord has sent him and we need to listen. They're trying to trap him. They think they've come up with just the right question because Jesus is acting like he's in charge. They're God's appointed leaders. They didn't invite him. So they think no one could have. They think by asking this question, they have Jesus in checkmate. But Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. Sometimes the best answer to a question is another question. And that's what he does here. He asks them about the baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it from man? Basically, he's saying, or he's asking about John's authority. He's he's not simply referring to to John's baptism, but the whole ministry that that, that surrounded John's ministry of baptism. And so it's essentially the same question they're asking him. By whose authority did John do these things? Now, John's story is well known. It's well documented. In fact, Luke has documented it for us. And it began in the very temple in which Jesus is standing with these leaders. You might remember all the way back to chapter 1, John's father was serving in that temple as a priest, Zechariah. And who came to him? an angel from heaven came and told him that the Lord had a mission, a ministry for his son, that he would would be the one that the prophets had foretold who would precede the Messiah, that he would lead Israel in this great uh, renewal, this spiritual repentance. And John did this. He went on to lead one of the most significant uh, spiritual renewals in Israel's history in centuries. Everyone knew about John. John was not an unknown person in Israel. And everyone had an opinion about John. No one ever claimed that he was commissioned by men. It was, you either believed that he was sent 
by God or that he was a fraud. Those were the two options. And these are the religious leaders of Israel in Jerusalem. In other words, they're the leaders of the leaders. If anyone should have an opinion on who John was, it's these men. If they don't have an opinion, what business do they have leading Israel? What business do they have guarding the temple? But there's more to, John, to Jesus' question than just that. Because what did John say while he led this great movement? He said that he was the messenger for one who was far greater than he. And he didn't leave it vague about who this other person was. He pointed to Jesus and said, that's him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's, it's his sandal that I'm not worthy to untie. They can't endorse John without endorsing Jesus as one greater than John. More than that, John was the fulfillment of that prophecy we heard in our call to worship this morning in Malachi 3. It said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. But God goes on in that verse and he says this. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. If John spoke with authority, then Jesus is the Lord and he has come to his temple as Malachi foretold. An awful lot rests on how these leaders answer Jesus' question. They had better choose their words carefully. You can sense their anxiety as someone calls huddle and they all go into conference mode and try to figure out how are we going to answer this question. But you notice in verses 5 and 6 that they're, they're not trying to figure out what the right answer is but which has the least consequences for them? If they say that John was a prophet, then the question will be, then why didn't you listen to him? But if 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 they say he wasn't a prophet, that he was just some self-appointed preacher, they fear that the people will revolt because John was very popular. So what's driving them? If these are the questions they're asking as they try to figure out how to respond to Jesus, they're not asking what's true. They're asking what is the most helpful to them. They're not driven by a love for the truth, but, but the fear of man. And this is what God has warned his people against. Think about Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. God says, don't be driven by the fear of man. Don't be driven by man's approval, but by God's truth. The Apostle Paul, you may remember, says something very similar in Galatians 1. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And then he says this, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
These leaders' concern is not the truth. They're not being driven by a loyalty to God and to his word. They are only watching out for themselves. And they are in an awful pickle. So what do they say? They say, we don't know. And as any parent knows, I don't know is typically code for, I don't like the question and I like the answer even less. If they don't know the answer, they have no business leading Israel. But really, they're simply refusing to answer the question because they don't want to surrender their power. Since they refuse to answer Jesus' question, in verse 8, he likewise refuses to answer theirs. Jesus isn't just playing games. He's, he's not like, well, huh, well, if you, if you can't answer a question, then, then I, I won't either. He's, he's, it's, he's not trying to avoid a hard question. In a very real sense, he's already answered their question by bringing up John. Because if, if John was sent by heaven, and John was the fulfillment of the scriptures preparing the way for me, you know the answer by whose authority I do this. I think his refusal to answer directly is a pronouncement of judgment. God has historically kept his word from his enemies. That seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. Leaving people in the dark is a way of bringing judgment, and Jesus is pronouncing judgment on these leaders. Because this is his temple... And they have been using it for their glory. Next week, Lord willing, as we we look at verses 9 through 18, we'll see the consequences and what Jesus pronounces as, as what the judgment will be. But for now, we can't miss how important this issue of submission is. They have attacked his authority And he has pronounced judgment on them. They are being relieved of duty. And he's retaking God's temple for God's glory. And this does apply to us. Because the church is God's temple. And that means he's in charge of us. And still there are today people in positions of leadership who see their positions as something they're entitled to and their mission becomes holding on to power rather than serving the God who rules. The fear of losing power, the fear of man leads to all sorts of temptations. Only preaching certain parts of the Bible, uh, refusing to say the unpleasant things, refusing to practice discipline. You get the idea if we do that, it will be unpopular. If we do that, people won't, won't like us. If we, we do that, there might be a rebellion. But it's not just the leaders who face this temptation. How many people claim to love the Bible as God's word, but when things get hard, they say things like, I'm just not comfortable with that. Or I don't like that. Or... 
Why are all these people in my business? Or maybe they say something like, well, that was written an awful long time ago. That's, that's in the Old Testament. Or, that sounds sexist. Or, we know so much more now about human sexuality. Or, well, if I believe that, I'd have to... So therefore, I can't believe that. If you only submit to the things in the Bible that you agree with, you're not submitting. You're just acknowledging when God agrees with you. Submission is demonstrated when it's hard, when you disagree. That's difficult. Very difficult. But it's important. It's what Jesus is addressing in this passage. This is what he is confronting the leaders on. Because they say they submit to God, but their unwillingness to answer a simple question demonstrates that they don't. You hear these issues, don't you, in our membership vows? We heard them last week. We we heard them this morning. The first membership vow is confessing that the Bible, Old and New Testaments, you notice that, right, are God's word and therefore speak with authority in our lives. The fourth vow is about confessing Jesus as sovereign Lord. In other words, that he has the authority to tell me what to do. And the fifth is about submitting to his discipline. I don't know how else to put it. Either Jesus is Lord or you are. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't make concessions. When you come to Jesus, you lay your life on the altar and you say, this this is yours to do with as you would. I'm not saying that a Christian, a true Christian, will never rebel and take control back and sin. Not at all. But a true Christian will acknowledge that as sin and rebellion and confess and repent. There's a temptation out there to find a church that never makes you feel uncomfortable. To ignore things in God's word that seem outdated or don't make sense to you. To disregard portions that challenge your political loyalties. And Jesus says, I am the Lord and I require allegiance. I know that sounds scary. As I mentioned at the beginning, we we don't like authority, especially absolute authority, because we think of dictators, we think of despots, totalitarian leaders, and tyrants. And that's because sinners trying to take to themselves 
something that belongs to God alone and that they don't have the right or the ability to wield. But there is no better place to be in this universe than in total surrender to Jesus Christ. Because to whom are you surrendering? John told us, it's the Lamb of God who who takes away our sins. Jesus told us, it's the one who came to seek and to save the lost. It's the one who tells us he is gentle and lowly. It's the one who surrendered his own life to save yours. Yes, Jesus has has absolute power, but, but in him it is married to perfect love. We may be headed into hard times. What happens if the freedom to worship no longer exists? What if allegiance to Jesus means losing your job? Or what if the Bible simply confronts something in your life? Those are all scary thoughts. And yet there is no safer place to be than in the will of your Savior. Remember his admonition. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. In other words, he's saying following me might might come at a great danger, at a great cost. But there's nothing this world can do to you that it did not first do to your Savior. And when it does, it's then that you need to remember his promise. I have said these things to you, that in me you have, may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we see this in, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus surrendered and rested in the perfect will of his Father, death could not have the final word over him. And likewise, it cannot have the final word over those who place their hope in him. And this is made visible for us in the Lord's Supper before us. Here we have a picture of what absolute allegiance to his Father cost him. The bread and the wine are... are are visible reminders to us of his body and blood given in death, the the price that he was willing to pay to do what was right. He had to lay his life on the altar, and he did so willingly. But why do we use bread and wine? Because his body is not on this earth. His tomb is empty. And he ascended into heaven and he is enjoying the reward and the blessing for surrendering to his Father's will. And his promise to us is sealed through the sacrament 
that those who surrender to him will one day join him in heaven. Beloved, as we come to this table, we, we do so as an act of surrender. We acknowledge that our lives belong to Jesus Christ for him to do with as he will. But we also come seeking strength to do that well because it's hard. It's so hard. And as, he, as we eat physical food and as, as pictures of sustenance, we're reminded that he feeds our souls and he strengthens our souls to do that which is difficult and hard. And so we come to this table to find strength to trust God even when it gets scary. And as you come, you receive God's promise that you do not come in vain. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift and this meal from our God this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we confess that sometimes your word scares us. It threatens our comfort, our wants, our desires. And it calls us to surrender to your authority. And we know that this is good, that there's no safer place to be in the universe. And so we ask that you would take what we have heard today and you would cast out all fear, all obstinance, and that you would help us to experience the sweet peace of surrendering to you. We lay our lives on the altar. They are yours to do with as you would. Use us for your own glory. We pray, amen.